The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Kristen Neff, is an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a pioneer in the fields of self-compassion research. She's the author of Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and her new book is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up claim their power, and thrive. You can read an excerpt from the book and an interview with Kristen done by Stephen Kiesling on the Spirituality and Health website at spiritualityhealth.com. Kristen Neff, welcome to Essential Conversations. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Hopefully, I'm not going to just sort of reiterate what you and, and Steve Kiesling did, because um, <laughs> that will be not really what this podcast is supposed to be about. So we'll try to see if we can go a little deeper into a couple of areas. One thing that interested me, there was actually a couple, though I do feel somewhat out of my league, because this book really, even though you say the book deals with everybody, it's it, the punch of it is when it talks to and uh, you know for the, the thriving of women. So I'm a little bit out of my league, but I'll do the best I can. You, you start the book out with a bold proposition when you're talking about women here. The, you use the pronoun, you know, we are, we mm-hmm. are, but the listener should know you're talking about women. So you, I'm just going to quote you. If we're ever going to move beyond male dominance and take our proper place at the tables of power, we need to reclaim the right to be fierce. So tell me what you have in mind when you say the right to be fierce. Well, you know, so I I talk, the book's mainly about fierce versus tender self-compassion, right? So tender self-compassion is more the traditional female gender role, nurturing, soothing, being kind. And of course, we normally do it to others. (laughs) Um, Self-compassion, we give it to ourselves. But there's also a fierce side of compassion that the Buddhists talk about. They talk about fierce compassion. And this is when you um, harness the power of action to alleviate suffering, right? It means doing something brave. A firefighter who pulls people out of a burning building is very compassionate, right? So this is also a side of compassion called fierce self-compassion that we can turn inward. And it's very helpful in terms of like protecting ourselves, speaking up, standing up for our rights. 
However, if you look at historical gender role socialization, women are allowed to be tender, but not fierce, right? People don't like it when women are too competent. They don't like it when she's too assertive. They don't like it when she's too loud. They don't like it, God forbid, if she gets angry, right? And this socialization just constantly toward tenderness and uh, against fierceness really is part of maintaining our power inequality. You know, women are taught to meet other people's needs, not to meet their own. That kind of means that we're pretty good in the helpmate role (laughs) and perhaps not so good in the leadership roles, at least historically. And I think things were designed that way, right? That's partly why these gender roles develop, because they were developed to keep the system going. Right. Designed that way by... Well, the patriarchy. But, you know, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it's not like there's one person who did it, but that's just kind of how the system evolved in terms of. Yeah, this women, isn't this know. isn't natural selection. This is cultural exactly. determination or whatever. It, you want right, to call it. right. Imposition. So yeah, w- women had to be subservient in order not to get in trouble. Right? They couldn't yeah. own property. They didn't have power. They couldn't vote. Yeah. Um, so, and so l- things l- have changed a lot. But that that prohibition against fierceness and women speaking up and getting angry, it's still. It's still really powerful. So that's what this book tries to address. So so let me, I want to go back a little bit, pick up on something you said, but let me just talk about this first. That, you know, things have changed and changed for the better. You just said yeah. that, but mm-hmm. not, okay, tell me if this is fair. Things have changed and changed for the better, but not changed fundamentally. That the lack of the right to be fierce has been imposed yeah. for thousands of years. And that really hasn't changed. Right. So, so some things have changed, but like, for instance, gender roles. So, so the way the terms they use in the gender role literature is communal and agentic, which really maps on to fierce and tender. And there was a big study that examined, um, you know, whether or not this basic difference between f- uh, female stereotypes being communal and males being agentic over a 30 year period, and they found absolutely no change. So even though, you know, our place in society has changed, of course, we do have more power. Things are a lot more equal. Things are a lot better than they used to be. But the stereotypes themselves haven't changed. And the reason they're so damaging is because they operate implicitly, right? So for instance, what we know is if we see a woman who's too powerful or she speaks well of herself, she's kind of, or obviously competent, people don't like her because they assume that she's not nurturing and people like nurturing women. And and women collude in this just as much as men. It's not a conscious thing. We just feel like, I don't really like her. She's too bossy or there's something about her I don't like. And so that's really women's, when women are fierce, it gets this negative reaction. And that's why um, women are kind of afraid to go there. So the whole book is really about saying that, well, first of all, we need to claim this energy. I mean, look at the Me Too movement. That's really women saying, hey, no more. You know, <laughs> I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm not going to take it anymore. So we need to claim this fierceness. But, but the way we can do it, instead of like being like men or acting like men, the, the, the pathway to this fierceness is through kindness, is through compassion. I call it our mama bear compassion, right? Just like that powerful energy of a mama bear, you know, she'll rip your head off if you attack her cubs. It's very, very powerful, quite scary sometimes. Well, we can actually harness that fierce kindness to protect ourselves and, um, you know, to stand up for the rights of women and and anyone who's oppressed, not just women. So I just want to step back a second because where much of this is outside my area of 
expertise, whatever expertise I might have. You mentioned the idea of woman as, I think you said helpmate or help. The, Historically, yes, like the helper, right? So yeah, the man, right. So, yeah. so I just wanted to pick up on that for a second, because that is a Western trope that comes from the book of Genesis and is a complete misread of the actual Hebrew. So I'll just put this out there. The, the actual Hebrew, when it speaks of uh, the woman and her relationship to the man in Genesis, is Ezer Konegdo. Ezer means helper, but Konegdo means in opposition to, hmm. so, or in opposition to him. The O at the end is him. So she helps by being his opposing character. Interesting. She's not mm-hmm. subservient. I mean, the ideal in as opposed to the idea. The ideal in the Hebrew is that she helps by showing him where he screws up. And there's a whole literary theory about the early stories in Genesis or about the patriarchal, the um, family stories in Genesis where the matriarchal character is always the mover and shaker behind the scenes, that these were written by women Hmm. for women in attempt to make fun of the men because the men in Genesis are oftentimes complete you know, doofuses, but, but just, just the Hebrew is, is way more insightful. And then the, the literature around it from centuries and centuries ago is that the woman that it is his helpmeet in the Genesis is actually the second woman that is created in this, in the story. The first woman's name was Lilith and she was, she and, and, and the man, Adam, she and Adam fought all the time over sexual dominance. <laughs> and according to the rabbinic literature, Adam wanted to be on top when they had intercourse and Lilith wanted to be on top when they had intercourse. And so they went to see God to see which is the right way to do it. And God said, no, the guy is on top. And Lilith said, then I'm not playing. And she leaves the garden. And then, you, then they create Eve. God creates Eve, who uh-huh. is still fierce in the sense of Konegdo being in opposition to. But doesn't seem to have the same sexual issues that Lilith did. So anyway, just a little background that mm-hmm. was triggered in my mind when when you said that. Yeah, it was, the thing is in, in the book, I try to get away from even calling these masculine and feminine because I think that's misleading. I, I like to use the metaphor of yin and yang, which also maps on to fierce and tender. And mm-hmm. from the perspective of Chinese philosophy, you know, yin is the more tender energy, yang is the more forceful, fierce energy. You know, from that perspective, m- mental um, health is defined as having a balance between yin and yang. And when there's an imbalance, things get out of whack. And it's really a problem that we've gendered these things. I mean, men are just as harmed as women. I mean, they, they, you know, they get some goodies and resources, so in some ways they benefit. But on the other hand, the fact that men aren't allowed to be tender, they aren't allowed to be sensitive, they aren't allowed to um, use compassion toward their own emotions and the emotions of others, that really harms men because the research shows compassion is tremendously beneficial for mental well-being. You know, it reduces depression, anxiety, you know, it reduces shame, all those negative emotions. So, you know, the problem is not so much men versus women. The problem is that we have these two essential life force energies, yin and yang, and we've gendered these things. You know, everyone has their own natural balance of yin and yang. And who are we to put people in a shoebox and say, you can be this way, but not that way? It's unhealthy from my point of view. Yeah. 
on some level, it hurts both men and women. It does. Uh, And I agree. On another level, it benefits men to the detriment of women in the sense of, of, you know, the patriarchal. Both are true. Both are true. true. You know, what's interesting in the book, you say, because I am a white, cisgender, heterosexual woman, undoubtedly there will be unconscious biases in what I write. So I'm just curious. I mean, that the statement itself is a given. We all have our our biases predetermined by our gender, maybe, or our sex, or you know, whatever, our, our race. But what I was interested in when I read that, and I may be just reading into this, but are there differences that you have found regarding fierce self-compassion with regard to trans women or gay women or women of color? Uh, no, there's no literature on that. No, not really. There's actually not a lot of uh, uh, psychological literature on on differences in self-compassion in general. But I I suppose what I meant by that was, you know, writing this, and I'll give you an example. Actually, it turns out I I did use a term in there that was unconsciously offensive that someone called me out on and I had to apologize. So I was kind of apologizing in advance for some of my, you know, I, you just get it wrong. It's so hard these days not to get it wrong. And the whole point is, can we be open and accept it? And I'll give you the example. Um, in the book, I use the word sissy. And I was kind of using it in the, you know, the way you learn as a kid, you know, sissies, people are weak. And then someone said, you know, this is, this is considered a homophobic slur. And I'm like, oh no, I didn't know, you know what I mean? So things like that happen. And of course, that's partly because I'm cisgendered, heterosexual. I wasn't as tuned in to that fact as someone who probably had been teased by that term would have been. So I, I was basically just setting up the fact that just to acknowledge, um, yes, I'm going to make errors. And in fact, I did. There are probably others in there that I haven't caught yet. Please forgive me. But just to kind of say that, you know, I, I'm writing about gender and it's really hard to write about gender because, of course, gender is a construct and a lot of people don't even buy into gender. So it was, it was trying to weave a way to talk about gender role socialization without reifying any of it and also acknowledging that it's hard not to get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. I mean, everyone has confirmation bias, so everyone is going to be skewed one way or the other. When, right. when the person complained, were they compassionate about it or were they just gotcha? No, they actually were. Well, because it was was someone who wrote to me, yeah, just sent me an email and actually responded back. And I said, oh, I didn't didn't realize I'm so sorry. And I actually managed the next printing of the book, which will be hopefully pretty soon, is going to change it. So I I said, thank you very much. And I changed it. And we actually had a really nice dialogue about it. And so um, she, I, I believe it was a she, she, she was, seemed just happy that I listened and, and took her point of view in instead of just saying, oh, don't bother me, you know. Right. And that's, so, and I I, that's, if anyone else listening finds anything like that, please let me know. <laughs> I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow. It's really hard to get it right. But but do it with the same sense of compassion. Yes, exactly. And she, wasn't, she was just letting me know. And I, I, I mean, sometimes they it. look for, people will look for, a mis- you know, I don't know if you want to call that a mistake, but look for something like that just to one up you and to you know call into question the entire book and your entire life and you know that that kind yeah. of thing so but she didn't do that people, no no and also you know if people have a lot of anger and they should have a lot of anger so for instance as a white woman i have to accept that that 
For instance, when you commit an unintentional microaggression, it's like, yeah, maybe you didn't do it intentionally, but nonetheless, the whole entire history set up the person to react the way they did. So who am I to say what's overreaction or underreaction? You know, in a way, it almost doesn't matter if it was intentional or not. We, you know, the, the important thing is that we listen and we hear and that we're, you know, we try to be present and compassionate, by the way, to ourselves as well as others. I actually talk about this in the book, why I think self-compassion is so important for social justice work because we are going to get it wrong and we need to be able to hold the pain of that and not give up <laughs> and not just say, oh, forget it. If people are too this or too that and just say, wow, that hurts. Okay. I do have unconscious bias. I didn't, I don't mean to, but nonetheless, it's there. Can I look at it? And to be able to do that, you need to be brave and you need a lot of um, self-compassion to do that. Yeah. I think the word brave needs to be highlighted. You definitely need to be brave yeah, because it wouldn't be easier not to go there. Well, we tried that for many years and thank goodness that we can't get away with that any longer, you know, whether yeah. it's sexism or racism or, you know, heterosexism. I mean, from my point of view, it's an amazingly wonderful thing that all of these things are coming to light. But at the same time, it's also painful. We're going to we're going to fall down and make mistakes. So hopefully everyone can have compassion for ourselves and others as we go through this process. Yeah, I I I think it's painful in a way that, um, oh, now I can't think of an analogy. You know, having surgery to to fix your, yourself yes. is painful. Yeah. I mean, it's painful, but it's painful for the for a good a for good, a good cause. reason. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I don't want to go through the entire interview and and not help people really grasp what you have in mind when we talk about self compassion. So, okay, <laughs> uh, you list three elements mm -hmm. of self compassion: mindfulness common humanity and kindness. Can you yes. unpack those or please unpack those for us? Yeah, yeah. And so my model of self-compassion, which I came up with almost 20 years ago now, talks about these three elements. And from my point of view, they all need to be there in order for compassion to be healthy. So the first step of, of compassion really is mindfulness. In other words, we need to be able to be aware of and present with things that are painful. Right, so compassion in the Latin means to compassion, suffer with. So in order to be with ourselves and our suffering, we need to be able to be turned toward it and acknowledge it. Um, often we don't want to do that. We either want to stuff it away, you know, pretend it's not there, and you can't give yourself compassion if you don't acknowledge that you're in pain in some way. Or the other extreme, we get fused with it, we get lost in it, and when we're fused, we can't step outside of ourselves to say, "Hey, you're having a hard time. Can I help?" So mindfulness is really the first step of self-compassion. Um, and then, of course, we need to respond with kindness, with warmth, with care. And that kindness can either take more of a tender form, again, warm, nurturing, accepting, or sometimes it's more of a fierce form. Sometimes it's like a little kick in the butt. Hey, you need to change something because this is making you unhappy. I care about you. That's why you need to change your behavior or, or change the situation. So the kindness element is there. Uh, and that's more of the emotional tenor of self-compassion. And then really important is the third element, common humanity. This is what um, differentiates self-compassion from self-pity, right? Self-pity is woe is me. Common humanity, it's really the wisdom element of self-compassion. It's the recognition that, you know, we're all human beings. We're all imperfect. We all live an imperfect life. And when you go even deeper with it, we all impact each other. You know, we're all part of this larger interconnected whole. And from that perspective, it doesn't make sense to have compassion for other people, but not for ourselves. 
Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you think it's harder for people, uh, well, we're not really talking just about people in, in general. Do you think it's harder for women to do the work of self-compassion, given the fact that fierce compassion is, the, you know, that tenderness is the, the default mode? Is it hard for women to do this for them, you know, for themselves? Not by themselves, but yeah, for themselves. Yeah, yeah. No. So, yes, it is more challenging for women. Also, even for the tender self-compassion, right? So, if you look at self-compassion levels, we find that um, women are slightly less self-compassionate than men are. And that's basically because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs, right? Because they're raised with enormous self-sacrifice. Whereas men are raised to, with the idea, hey, my needs are important. They deserve to be met, right? On the other hand, women are a lot more compassionate to others than men are because, again, of the gender role socialization. So it can feel selfish for women to be self-compassionate. And especially in the form of fierceness, things like drawing boundaries, saying no to others, right? It can be more difficult to women because, you know, women are valued for saying yes. We like helpful women. We like agreeable women. And when you say no, sometimes people don't like you quite as much, you know? And that's one of the things about self-compassion is you, you, can, you can start liking yourself so you aren't so dependent on other people's approval, meaning you don't have to like subordinate yourself to other people's wishes all the time. Which but, empowers you to say no when it's it, Which empowers you to say no. The, the good news though, is that even though women are a little less self-compassionate than men, they're also more comfortable with the idea of self-compassion being a useful thing, right? So 85% so of the people that come to my workshops are women. <laughs> That's because we know the power of compassion. We've seen it and we're, we're compassion experts toward other people. So all we really have to do is make a U-turn and turn that well-honed skill inward toward ourselves. Men, unfortunately, because they're so socialized against being tender and, you know, compassion's a female thing, therefore it must be weak. Um, men feel a little less comfortable at least learning self-compassion, which like I say, harms men. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. When you say that women are 
I can't remember exactly how it is, but experts in self, yes. in compassion. In compassion for others, yeah. In, yeah. Right, for, for others. I'm wondering if that if that's actually the case, and here's what I'm thinking, that women being experts in tender compassion, uh-huh. I wonder how much is lost if you don't have the fierce element, even when you're being compassionate toward others. I'm thinking of 12-step groups and things where you, where you have compassion, but it's fierce mm-hmm. in that you confront not just your own addictions, but you know, it depends on the, the setup, but where, where, where people are confronted uh, by their own addictions. And there's a fierceness to that. So do women have to learn? I, I know we, you said they have to reclaim it. Do they have to actually learn what it is to be fierce? Well, so here's the thing. There is one area where we're, we're, we're very good at being fierce, and that's with, toward our children. That's what I call it mama and mama bear. <laughs> so in some ways, it actually is a feminine energy, this fierce mama bear. And we know it. We can feel it inside of ourselves. We're just socialized to, to say, you know, don't use it for anyone except your children. But we we do have one sphere in which we can use it and tap into it. And so, again, it's not so much like you're venting the wheel. You're just doing something you already know how to do and and using it with yourself. Yeah, you're using the wheel to drive on a different road than than you were before. Yeah, it's really a matter of giving yourself permission is is the biggest key. Yeah, I I can see that. I can see that. And and that's going to require a fierceness all its own, giving yourself permission. That's right. Yeah. It, it takes some bravery to start the path yeah. of self-compassion because our, our culture doesn't support it is one thing. Um, and especially things like drawing boundaries, you know, you do have to, you, you might have to deal with some people not liking you quite as much. Of course, you know, the good news is as long as you balance fierceness and tenderness, there's no backlash. You, there's no, there's no negative consequences to it. But it does, you know, your 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 spouse or your boss may not like it when you start start drawing boundaries. You know, hopefully they're okay with it. But that's the thing. We can't be totally dependent on other people's approval because, you know, where has that gotten us? Right. Right. Exactly. And by the way, this applies to a lot of men as well. I'm talking about women, but, but a lot of men sure. are also really want the approval of others. And so I don't want to take the gender thing too literally. It's just just kind of the backdrop of patriarchy affects men and women differently, which is why it's relevant. Yeah, we're focusing on on women, but this applies to both men and women. One of the things that I don't think people will get from this, and and I was really taken with it in the book, that there's a strong physical touch component to cultivating self-compassion. And you give a lot of exercises in the book where people can can do these things. Yeah. Uh, there's no way, unless I'm saying there's no way you can always say, oh, yes, there is. But I don't, I don't think uh, that we can go through some of these more uh, uh, intricate exercises. But early in the book, I don't know if you have a copy of the book with you. I should have I asked do. You I have it right next to me. So just, <laughs> oh, well, okay. That's good for two reasons. One is just turn to page 27. Okay. And on page 27, you talk about soothing and supportive touch. And that yes. kind of thing comes up more than just here. But yes, can you just talk a little bit about, you say, some tender soothing options include one or two hands over your heart, cradling your face in your hands, gently stroking your arms. Why do these kinds of things affect, and I, and I did them too, and I, I attest that they actually make this, these physical actions create 
changes in your emotional state. They do. It's actually um, very, very natural because touch evolved to be one of the most powerful signals of care because for the first couple of years of life before babies have language, the primary way parents communicate a sense of care and safety to their infants is through touch, right? So the whole, the whole system is designed to respond to touch as a signal of care. You know, they've, they've got uh, uh, studies where you can put your hand in a box, you know, so you don't see the other person, there's someone touching you through a box, you can't see them. And you know a lot about what type of touch, what emotion is conveyed through their touch because we're very sensitive to it. So um, touch can be used to soothe, to comfort, to calm. Touch can also be used to give a sense of support and strength, like I'm here for you, that type of um, more energetic touch. And, and the reason we talk about touch so much is because it works through the, the central nervous system, right? It, it activates the um, parasympathetic nervous system, deactivates sympathetic or nervous system reactivity, things like cortisol, reduces cortisol. So sometimes you're, you know, your head can't go there. It's too full of the storyline of how awful you are, how awful the situation is. And like touch cuts, cuts through all the chatter and goes directly to your physiology, just like you are a child being held by your parents. You know, when you do that for yourself, your body doesn't really know the difference. And that's why it's so powerful. And you can feel it almost immediately. Yeah, uh, that's, that's what happened when I tried the, the exercises. They're, they're not, it's not like you have to do this for, 40 days and then no. you begin to, it's, 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 no, it's really, almost immediate. It, yeah. it really is. Yeah. It really is immediate. So since you have a book with you yes, and, and we are running out of time, uh, <laughs> I want to look at what's sort of a manifesto at the end of the book. So yes. page 302, and there's so much material here. We can't go through it all or even most of it, but on page 302, you write, as for myself, I'm entering a new phase, the wise woman or crone years, as this time is often called. And then you, you go on to, to talk about this. And then in the next paragraph, um, I'm going to ask you to actually read. It says, for one, I've stopped trying. So read that paragraph for us and tell us what's going on with you now as you hear it maybe compared to when you wrote it, but what's going on with you now when you hear that? When okay, you, so you want to you know, read that paragraph for one? Yeah. Right. For one, I've stopped trying to understand my patterns and heal my wounds. I've realized that my ego and personality are functional enough. I don't need to understand my parts more thoroughly, although I'm grateful to the years of therapy that helped me reach that place. I've gotten to know and appreciate all aspects of myself. The part that's like a warrior with a drawn bow and I perceive someone to be violating the truth. The part that speaks authentically, even if not always diplomatically. The part that's hardworking and keeps going even when things get difficult in life. And the part that can hold it all with love. So pretending you just heard this for the first time. Yeah. What, what, what happens when you read that? What, what's coming up for you? <laughs> my, my thought was I worked damn hard for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I say, I've done I've done a lot of therapy, right? You know, twenty years of therapy. I think there's there's a real place for unpacking your wounds and trying to work on aspects of your personality that are less functional. And you know, I'm I'm also referring because in many ways, my problem isn't that I'm not fierce enough. My problem is actually the opposite that I'm a little too fierce. Everyone's different. I'm a little more yang than yin, and so I've kind of had to deal with that, given that that women aren't liked when they're too fierce. And I happen to be quite fierce in my personality. 
And so it's really about coming to terms with who I am at this point in my life. You know, so I did, I did end my therapy. I told my therapist, you know, I think I'm good enough. And he agreed, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, so it's really for me, I, I end the chapter with the, um, the phrase uh, of becoming a compassionate mess. That's really my practice now. I'm still a mess. I'm maybe a little less messy than I used to be marginally, but I'm still a mess. I still make mistakes. I still get it wrong all the time. But I have learned to hold that mess with compassion. And, and that's, that's a really good place to be. You know, when your heart's open, it almost doesn't matter what's, what you're holding. You know, we, you start to value the open heart more than actually getting it right. Yeah, that's that's where I was going. I'm glad you led us right to it. Compassionate mess. Yes. And I, I love this idea. And and again, let's just be clear, this is after a long 20 years, you said, of yeah. you know, working on yourself <laughs> with therapy. But still, so we don't want to shortchange anything and say, no. oh, all you gotta do is this and you know, yeah, you there's still work yourself. to be done. Yeah. <laughs> but but I love this idea. Stop trying to understand my patterns and heal my wounds. I've realized that my ego and personality are functional enough. I mean, right. that is brilliant because <laughs> we can spend endless hours. You yeah. know, I, you don't really lay on a couch for most therapy anymore, but you can spend yeah. endless hours on the couch. It becomes a narcissistic kind of thing. Oh, I got to fix this. I got to fix that. And it's all this drama about fixing a self that eventually is functional enough. And the the culminating in the idea of a compassionate mess, that's very liberating. It it is liberating. It's really about transcending the self. I mean, you, you kind of need a healthy self in order to, to transcend it. You know, people talk a lot about that. And hopefully I'm at that phase of my life where again, not perfect, but good enough that I can focus on the transcendence and the and the love and the compassion and the, you know, the the humor of it all as well. Yeah, that's something I'd love to explore with you, too, because I think that comes across. But we are out of time. It's okay. a good place to end, though, because uh, I think it, it ends on a, a very upbeat note. Our guest today, Kristen Neff, is the author of Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. You can learn more about her work on her website, selfcompassion.org. Kristen, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at spirithealthmag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. 
Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.